0: The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. I, uh, I normally preach in Italian, uh, and I was mentioning this to Rick. We were talking, so uh, sometimes I forget my vocabulary. So if a, a word in Italian comes out, please don't hold it against me, uh, I'm preaching through the Gospel of John, and, and that's also thanks to the encouragement and the counsel of your pastor. And so um, I would just like you to turn to John chapter 1, John chapter 1. You have, I am certain, exceptional teaching, and so I am not here at all to, uh, to, uh, uh, to reach that level. Uh, but I'm certainly, and my hope is certainly that I can encourage you and exhort you as uh, the Word exhorts my own life and my own ministry, the Gospel of John. And as you turn there, John chapter 1, uh, our message uh, is entitled, The Fundamentals of Being a Witness, Two Fundamentals of Being a True uh, Witness for Jesus Christ, uh, John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28. And as you're turning there, I'd just like to begin by asking you a question, uh, A few questions that are on my heart as I study this passage and serve in ministry in Italy. What is a witness? What is a witness? We understand this term to refer uh, to someone called to testify, whether it be in a court of law or in a more informal setting. A witness is called to share his testimony about someone or something. As believers, we recognize The profound importance of this word. Just before his ascension, the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth, Acts 1.8. Reading further in that same first chapter of Acts, Peter stands up before the gathering of the brethren and addresses the need to replace Judas, as you know, in the office of apostleship. And we know that eventually the lot falls on Matthias. But for our purposes, it is very interesting to observe how the apostles are described. In verse 22, we read, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. John 1, Acts 1.22, excuse me. Going even further back for a moment to the first volume of Acts, so to speak, the Gospel of Luke, we read in chapter 24, verses 46 and 48, or 248, the final charge of the risen Lord to his disciples. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and verse 48... You are witnesses of these things. Witnessing is the duty and responsibility of every follower of Christ. We are commanded to share the gospel, the truth, about the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins for all who believe in his sacrifice. Witnessing is by no means an easy task. As I'm sure you may know, Having evangelized and reached out to friends, families, co workers around you. It calls for conviction and courage. No doubt it involves the risk of persecution. This was certainly true of the first century and continues to be true to this day. In certain parts of the world, as you know, the dangers are greater than in others. In countries like my own, Italy, witnessing involves often bearing the shame of family and friends. The witness, perhaps a first-generation believer, according to these groups of people, has betrayed Italian culture, identity, and tradition by leaving Roman Catholicism and joining what is thought to be a cult. And thus, oftentimes, one's own family is an obstacle to the gospel, to the gospel. The etymology, uh, the root of the term itself, derives from the root martyr, martyr. We all understand and shiver in some respects at the significance of this latter term. A witness may risk disgrace, exile, and even suffer death. Both Old and New Testaments are replete with stories and biographies of martyrs, So is the intertestamental period, and so is, of course, church history, as you may know, after the first century. I say all this because this morning, our passage of study presents to us a model witness through the life of John the Baptist. And I would like us to consider the nature of a witness Our text impresses upon us the need to take a closer look at what a testimony truly is and what sharing or giving a testimony actually means. Once again, as I reflect upon my own setting of ministry, the country of Italy, the island of Sicily, I realize how important a topic like this really is. Our churches are very small and doctrinally weak. Statistically, the church is considered to be less than 1% of the population, a population amounting to approximately 60 million people. Towns, numerous towns, one after another, without a true witness. Within that 1%, it is estimated that true believers are even less. Add to this the past. Historically, the church and even the Great Reformation itself, which many of you in America are the beneficiaries of, has been suppressed in Italy by a pseudo-church and a pseudo-religion. Hence, you can imagine the need for witness and witnesses in Italy. Naturally, though, the country and the context may change. The need is universal for God's true church. Witnessing is commanded by the Lord himself. And so with these thoughts in mind, I'd like you to look at our text and direct us to our text and I'd like to give you today I'd like to examine together the fundamentals of being a true witness. Our passage our passage presents us with two 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 fundamentals to being a true witness for Christ. Here's the first. Here's the first. A true witness for Christ understands his mission. He understands his mission. And here's the second. A true witness for Christ understands his message. He understands his message. To be a faithful witness, you must understand your mission, your role in God's plan of redemption and your message, the content of what you will be sharing. You will be sharing. Please look with me at John chapter 1, verses 19 to 28, and follow as I read our passage. This is the testimony of John When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The Gospel of John opens with these words This is the testimony of John. It is the Gospel's first act, we could say, following the prologue, the heavenly description of the word incarnate made flesh, heaven's confirmation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God himself come to earth. John the apostle, author and evangelist, begins the first scene of his gospel in verse 19. John's beginning highlights the testimony, the witness of John the Baptist, beyond preparing us for the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. This opening act will teach us the significance of being a witness of and for Christ. We are given in these pages the example of a true witness. In fact, the term testimony and its various derivatives, um, shades, is pervasive in this first part of the narrative. The Baptist witnesses to priests and Levites concerning Christ, our passage, verses 19 to 28. The Baptist witnesses to another group of Jews about Christ, verses 29 to 34. The Baptist witnesses to two of his disciples pointing them to Christ, verses 35 to 39. The Baptist's own disciples pick up the baton From his example and witness to other disciples who then become the first followers of Christ on the basis of this unbroken chain of testimony. Verses 40 to 51. Testimony, 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 testimony. The role of the church in history, in the history of God's plan, is to take the word, the good news. And be witnesses. Witnesses. The Baptist confirms the testimony of Christ on earth. He is the first to confirm this. We have then four episodes that testify, affirm, and witness to the deity of Christ, the preexistent and incarnate word, the God-man who has now come to earth and is about to begin his ministry plan before the foundation of the world. The subject of witness and testimony is not only pervasive in this first chapter, but represents the goal of the entire book. We could say this is a manual for witnessing and understanding what a true witness is, a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Just listen to, the, to John's, the evangelist, the apostle's stated purpose written at the end of his gospel, but these signs performed by Jesus have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name, John 20, 31. John's gospel, in other words, is a witness to Christ. And in fact, as we study the subject of witness this morning, we are actually studying Christ. Because that is the goal of the witness. The witness is but a secondary instrument Called to magnify and affirm the deity of Christ. Affirm the Son. Expose the Son. Explain the Son. Just as the Son, as John says in his prologue, concluding the prologue, chapter 1, verse 18, has himself come to explain, exegete God. The only begotten God has come to explain God. And so we recognize the great privilege and responsibility, the stewardship that we have. Our passage consists of a dialogue between the Baptists and the Jewish religious leaders of the day as we begin just looking. And I'd like to draw you into the context before we look at our two principles. There are essentially two basic questions that the religious leaders ask the Baptist. We saw them as we read our passage. The first is, who are you? Who are you? Verse 19. And the second is, why are you baptizing? Verse 25. In other words, who are you and what are you doing? What are you doing? These questions help us clearly outline and understand John the Apostle's intent in writing this section out. Much more than a dialogue, as we'll see The exchange resembles a type of inquisition. The religious leaders view the Baptist as a threat and are determined to police his presence. Underlying the interaction between the two is the theme of witness or testimony. Verse 19, as already noted earlier, begins with this term. Our passage is about the testimony of John. And what is the meaning of the word testimony? Testimony is speaks of something to keep in mind, something to remember, to pay attention to. It involves the careful recollection of events, knowledge that comes from first-hand personal experience. The term is associated with another term, witness. To testify or to share one's testimony means assuming the role of a witness. Now, we understand as we noted in the introduction, what a witness to many, in many respects, does and is. This role implies integrity and objectivity. A witness comes forward to prove certain facts. As noted in the introduction, this often takes place in a legal context a courtroom, a courthouse, before a judge or a public official. The entire process is very serious, sober, and solemn. The witness is called to tell the truth and only the truth. Nothing more, nothing less. Oftentimes, we've seen images. Perhaps we ourselves have experienced it. One of our hands is placed on the Bible as we raise the other and are sworn in. The witness takes a stand. He uh, Draws a line in the sand by his stepping forward. This is duty, responsibility, and courage, but this is much more. It is mission. It is mission. Mission with a message. With a message. That is why it is so scandalous and shameful when a witness is found to be telling a lie. A lie. The Old Testament is very clear in this regard. What happens to a false witness or a false prophet? What would happen? They would be put to death. They would be put to death. The Lord is very clear. Deuteronomy, verse 19, Deuteronomy, excuse me, chapter 19, Deuteronomy 18, listen just to one of these verses. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness and he he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 to 19. A witness then must confirm facts. In declaring the truth, he is also revealing his own convictions. He expresses a moral and ethical judgment. He communicates doctrine. His testimony cannot be scientifically proven, but rather requires and is to be accepted, received by faith. How does this relate to John the Baptist, you may ask? How is this theme relevant to our passage? Well, John the Baptist is extremely significant because of the specific role he assumes. The fact that he is present on the scene and witnessing affirms the truth about the deity of Christ. He is not lying, as we shall see even in our passage. He is a witness to Christ, the first, as I said. In fact, John the Apostle does not even mention the Baptist's birth nor his preaching and neither his identity as the other gospel writers do, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He is determined to employ the Baptist in his gospel as one who is exclusively points to Christ. And as we know, John presents himself on the scene after 400 years of silence between the old and New Testaments. God is speaking once again. He is no longer silent. And John is his mouthpiece. The disciples of John will be God's mouthpiece. And follow the logic. Who, after John's disciples... Will be God's mouthpiece. I'm looking at you, me, you. It is astounding as we simply reflect on this infinite, incomprehensible, gracious stewardship that we've been given. And yet, there is so much apathy in my midst. I'm sure that's not your case. But in Italy, a church that's less than 1%, you would think would be thriving zealously to fulfill this stewardship. But that's not the case. Distracted, confused. Men without a mission And without a message. But not John the Baptist. Not John the Baptist. His mission and message must exalt Christ. And lead others to Christ. It is this zeal. And it's resultant effects publicly. That attracts the attention of the religious leaders. In Jerusalem. And hence the question. Who are you? It's almost as though. They've never seen someone like this, despite them being the religious authorities of the land. Who are you? asked the priests and Levites sent from Jerusalem at the end of verse 19. The historical context at this point reveals the Jews to be in a state of expectation. Who are they expecting? We know the Messiah, the Christ, their Messiah. The long-awaited anointed of the Lord, Luke, demonstrates this expectation from the people. He writes, Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, Luke 3.15. In some cases, the expectation was for more than one Messiah. In chapter 7, John, the apostle, in our gospel himself, demonstrates a state of expectation but confusion among the people concerning the Messiah. In general, the people's hope was set upon the coming of a conqueror. A conqueror, a king. According to the ancient prophecies, he would be a son of David. A greater David. This king would establish an earthly kingdom and rule. He would govern the nations politically and physically from Jerusalem, with Israel being at the center of his power. As a result, he would also physically Free Jerusalem, free Israel, free the Jewish people from foreign oppression, from the Romans who at that time were the current oppressors. You could imagine when Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus of Nazareth, as Nathanael will later say, can anything good come from Nazareth? And through John's witness, the answer is, When it is divine, yes, yes, yes. The location is not important. The man is. The Lord is. The Lord is. No one truly expected this king to appear, to come, to arrive on the scene as a suffering servant, to consider him like a lamb led to, the, led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears, a man of sorrows, stricken, smitten and afflicted by God, pierced through for our transgressions. This image was out of the question and deeply offensive to the Jewish mind. The twelve themselves demonstrate this perplexity concerning Jesus and his first coming, later on in Acts, as you know, in reading and studying Acts, just before the Lord's ascension in heaven. They still ask him, "Lord?" Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1.6. His own did not even have a full understanding of who he truly was. With this context in mind, then please look with me at our first fundamental principle as we drive more specifically to John's The apostle's intent. A true witness must understand his mission. Chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, the first section of our passage. A true witness must understand his mission. As we noted earlier, the encounter between the Baptist and the religious leaders takes on the form of an intense interrogation. These leaders, as our passage displays, actually ask the Baptist seven pointed questions, one after another, like rapid fire. Verse 19, verse 21, verse 22, and verse 25. We have the impression of sitting in an actual courtroom. The supposed spiritual authorities of the day appear to be on a mission themselves. Who is the Baptist? Is he the Christ, the Messiah? Elijah, is he another prophet long awaited and expected? Who is he and why does he baptize? Jerusalem, the mother church, the religious and spiritual stronghold of the day, dispatches a patrol among the people to ensure that nothing subversive is taking place. Nothing that hasn't been approved by their own authority. It's very interesting the similarities to Italy. The mother church, the Vatican, as they represent themselves, maintains a close pulse on activities, be it political, be it religious, but they are on the scene controlling controlling in verse 24 which functions like a turning point john the apostle specifies that these leaders had been sent from the pharisees whom we know as jesus's main enemies and accusers at his trial later on in the narrative and who eventually crucify him with the help of the romans It's interesting to observe at this point how the author, John, the apostle, uses the term sent in our passage. The word is mentioned three times referring to the priests and Levites who were sent from Jerusalem by the Pharisees. In two specific occasions, verses 19 and 24, as we've seen, the word indicates the power of the authority that sends, in this case, Jerusalem or the Jewish religious establishment. Its messengers, in other words, are authorized. They've been sent. These priests and Levites are coming, representing the highest religious power of the land. Notice, however, that in the original language, very interesting, this is the same word used to communicate that John the Baptist is a man sent from God. John chapter 1, verse 6, the prologue. In other words, John has been authorized by God and sent on a mission. This first exchange between the Baptists and the religious leaders represents the first confrontation, we could say, between the light and the darkness. God sends his messenger, the Baptist, empowered and authorized by divine power to point to the light, God's light. And Satan sends his emissaries, the religious leaders, empowered and under the charge of the forces of darkness. The chess match has begun between the light and the darkness in the Gospel of John. And as we know from the prologue, verse 5 of chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness, And the darkness did not comprehend it. The darkness did not suppress or suffocate it, is the sense. The darkness did not defeat it. But the light comes to unmask the darkness. And Christ will edify his church in spite of the darkness. This is the case to this day As we struggle, once again, I think of the country of Italy in our context, small churches striving to preach the word in the midst of overwhelming darkness that seeks to suffocate, that seeks to minimize, that seeks to discredit our message and the people themselves. The Baptist does not allow himself to be intimidated into submission by the interrogation from the religious authorities. Notice the strength of his witness. He understands his role and his mission in God's redemptive plan. This is unlike Peter, we could say, who falls apart during Christ's arrest and crucifixion to the point of fearing some servant girls and mere bystanders, and of course We want to be gracious with Peter. We know that the Lord restores him. But there's an interesting contrast here. The Baptist himself later on will show some doubt as to Christ's ministry and identity. But here we see this model witness. The Baptist stands firm. Both his testimony and his witness exhibit a faith that is replete with conviction and courage. Every true disciple, you and I in other words, are called to this standard of witness. There is no B Christian or B disciple. Everybody's in the A group and striving to be in there. I just attend church. I'm in the B group. No. The Baptist stands firm. Once again, this is more than duty. This is purpose and mission. In verse 20, the Baptist confesses twice that he is not the Christ. He is neither Elijah nor the prophet. The latter figure was a Moses-like figure who was prophesied and predicted by Moses himself in Deuteronomy. The Baptist resolutely negates these titles. He seeks no attention to himself. In fact, he is but a mere voice, verse 23. He does not even consider himself as an independent person or body. He has no interest in himself. His mere existence is to glorify Christ and point to Christ, pointing others to Christ while he himself living for Christ. He is a nobody. He is rather a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He's an echo of Isaiah who centuries earlier cried out to his people, prepare in the wilderness the way of the Lord. Make straight the dry and arid places for our God. This is the good news. It is a preview of a most blessed future. Why? Because God himself is about to arrive. Notice the added An immense blessing we have from the cross. We have seen the apex of the light, God incarnate. We are living after the cross. And so, in many ways, we are without excuse. The light has clearly shone in our midst. It is a preview of a most blessed future. In Malachi 3.1, the prophet says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. And this is the Lord God talking. I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Very interesting. In chapter 2, following this, as we follow the flow of the storyline, Jesus not only changes water into wine, but he does what? He enters the temple and cleanses it. God Himself is here. Make no mistake. Heed the Son, witness to the Son, live for the Son. The Lord is about to console and save his people. Isaiah proclaims this truth looking forward to the future millennial kingdom when Christ will come again as the long-awaited conqueror king who will establish his physical kingdom on earth for a thousand years. But the Baptist applies these words as a partial fulfillment during this time in light of God's first coming to earth. He inaugurates that glorious end that Isaiah prophesies. Thus, all the people must prepare themselves, purify themselves, They must remove every obstacle that may impede them from from receiving the Messiah, their Messiah. And what could prevent them and us from doing this? Sin, their sins, our sins, and a lack of repentance. Thus, there is a need for all to prepare their hearts through repentance before they can receive Christ. And this leads us to our second principle as we close this morning. A witness must not only understand his mission, but he must understand his message, verses 24 to 28. The truth of the preparation based upon and demonstrated by repentance brings us to why the Baptist is baptizing our second question. This is our second main question, which is the makeup of our passages flow and flow of thought and outline. In verse 25, the religious religious leaders ask the Baptist, why is he baptizing? The Baptist understands his message. Notice, he knows exactly what he is to communicate. He knows specifically who he is to point to. He is fully aware of the source, content, and intent of his testimony and witness. There is no confusion or misunderstanding. While he baptizes with water symbolically, Signifying the people's need for spiritual purification, repentance. Someone after him will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is the true purifier. His work is much more powerful. It is not symbolic, but true, supernatural, and lasting. In other words, our witness, our message is communicating more power, power that is beyond our limited human capabilities. It is not about us, but about the Christ and his message that is lasting and transforming. His baptism includes the spirit and fire. The message is that of the new covenant prophesied in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, principally, It points to that day when God Himself will, through His Spirit, change and radically transform hearts. Hearts of stone will be made new and become hearts of flesh. He Himself, as you know, will place a new Spirit in His people and all who believe by application. What is this message? What is this message? It is the sovereign miracle of salvation. God's salvation in Christ based upon the Son's death and resurrection at the cross. A message that is available to today, right now, for all who repent and believe. John the Baptist's appearance on the world scene as a witness preparing the way for the greater one to come is a sign of that first advent. The Baptist points to something greater, someone more powerful, sovereign, The Jews don't know him. The Baptist himself did not know him before. But this one is greater than he in preeminence and preexistence. He is the firstborn such that he is Lord over all things. The Baptist, notice, before one of this absolute authority is himself, feels absolutely unworthy. In fact, he places himself lower than a slave Slaves in the culture were able and permitted to untie the thong of their master's sandals. Almost expected. The Baptist does not even have the lowest status before Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior. He is not even able to untie the thong of his sandals. Our first scene in John's Gospel ends similarly to how it began, focusing on, bringing us back to the context and leading us to the ministry of the Lord himself. The apostle highlights the geography of where our passage takes place, Bethany beyond the Jordan. This is a significant location as will be developed in the Gospel of John. Simply astounding truth and stewardship as we look at our role and Pick up the baton from a model witness like John the Baptist. A man who understood his mission, his role in God's plan of redemption, and who clearly recognized his message. Not opinion, not himself. But Christ, pointing to the Son, exposing the Son, and living for the Son. In good times and in bad times, the Son. What sort of witness are you this morning? What sort of testimony are you living today today? Do you understand your mission? Do you understand your message? Let's pray. Father, we come before you simply humbled by your word and by its power, its clarity, and how it alone penetrates deep within our hearts. And unmasks us, Lord. And we come, Lord, bare before you, asking you to do this work of sanctification. Please help us, Lord, for our existence, our salvation, our sanctification, our Christian life, is so that we can see you, Lord Jesus, and we can show others your glory and your person and work. And yet we confess how sinful, how weak, how foolish, how lazy we often are, Lord. And how we fail to magnify you and live out our mission and its message. Thank you, Father, for your gracious reminder. Thank you. Because we know that the church depends upon you. It is your church. We are yours. And through your spirit, we can fulfill your word and your plan. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.